There are a couple of mild swear words in this, something I generally try to avoid in these podcasts where possible, but these particular ones were chosen carefully, and I think the observations would work less well without them. So I'm sorry about that, but you have been warned. Welcome to Indefinable Magic, a random cavalcade of mental jottings masquerading as observation and humour, written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This week's episode, You've Maddened It! That's the sound of this planet screaming out its rage. No, that's not a quote from Inferno. Well, all right, it is. But it's also an accurate observation of what happens when a Doctor Who DVD is released with incorrect spine artwork, or a continuity blunder occurs in a story, or a snarky article appears in a newspaper about our beloved show. We're an angry lot, aren't we? Anger, anger everywhere. Even, or perhaps especially, somewhere as trivial as the ephemeral wastes of social media cyberspace, where often the spectacle to be observed is two total strangers under pseudonyms getting furious with each other about some arcane fact about Doctor Who, or, even worse, each other's opinion on the merits or otherwise of a particular story, era, Doctor, not my Doctor. All this bred from something designed to be a piece of entertainment. Even more, disposable entertainment, part of a televisual landscape that has plenty of other sites on offer. We're not obliged to watch it, and we do this on social media, something designed to enable us to hook up with like-minded people, not left-hook a stranger who doesn't like frontios. And it's not like total strangers on the internet aren't avoidable, so why waste time tussling with the guy across the street when you could be having tea with the lady next door? But of course, we all have a different image of what Doctor Who is. Hopefully, the half-century that might divide us is generally undone by our common desire for family-friendly space entertainment with a sense of humour. But it's as legitimate a take to say that the show was, for example, never right once they got rid of the historical stories, which were, after all, an essential part of the show's DNA when it was conceived, as it is to say that historical stories aren't really what Doctor Who is about at all as far as most viewers are concerned. After all, they'd been phased out before most of us were born. So both views are valid, but having both exist at the same time is problematic, as they are the matter and antimatter of the opinion universe. And when fan opinions collide, they are more likely to cause a massive explosion than to cancel each other out. Peace, of course, depends on how willing you are to tolerate the other person's point of view. I love love and monsters, but deep down I can kind of understand why some people don't. People who don't like the androids of Tara, though, subhuman scum who will be first with their backs to the wall when the revolution starts. Outside of Doctor Who, I do a TV club, and I, have to be truthfully honest, 
there's one member who I really liked, but whose opinion I've never quite been able to trust since we did Ted Lasso, and she hated it. It's kind of spoilt her for me. So, you know, there are wrong opinions, and there are wrong opinions. But different opinions will always be with us, and life, says the cliché, would be boring if they weren't. Can you imagine what, say, the planet Tigella from the TV story Megalos would be like without differing opinions? It's what defines the place and its people. Tigella, without the savants and the Dions being angry with each other, would be basically a very dreary place full of carnivorous undergrowth and with a sudden plunge in the sails of peroxide. In fact, if no one disagreed on Tigella, then everyone would be like Zastor, who's the dullest thing in Meglos, and that is quite an achievement. But the Savants and the Dions disagree about religion and science, two pretty fundamental, important things. But where does the real-life anger about Doctor Who come from? That's not science, that's not religion. It's a hobby, a pastime, the thing that's supposed to take us away from the daily grind and give us mental relaxation or joy. Why does it prompt such vitriol? And vitriol, anger, well, it's powerful. Indeed, within the fiction of Doctor Who, stirring up the mob can prove to be a useful tool. There are countless scenes of crowds being worked up into a frenzy. And the anger generated by the war games in The Awakening feeds and strengthens the evil malice. Though, interestingly, the Doctor lumps fear and anger together here. They are as we will discover, definite bedfellows. And it's not just within the show itself, of course. Every time something is related about Doctor Who, it's impossible to escape a shower of disappointments or disapprovals about packaging or trailers or contents. This reached its apotheosis on a forum I frequent, where now someone regularly asks everyone else who has the latest Blu-ray box set if there are any mistakes or omissions that they should be looking out for. Looking out for? Well, now you're just asking for trouble. It's one thing to spot something amiss, and so therefore be grumpy about it, fair enough, but quite another to ask for mistakes you might have missed to be flagged up, just so you don't miss out on the opportunity to be angry about something you hadn't actually noticed had happened. Now look, I know some people who just like the show for entertainment value. I know. Shocking, isn't it? Fancy wanting just to be entertained by a piece of entertainment. And some who want it to be more than that, to mine it for subtext or political comment, so that it's a show that stimulates them intellectually. Again, perfectly valid points of view, both. Personally, I think the former camp miss out on something if all they're after is just disposable diversion. And if Doctor Who was just that, then surely it wouldn't have deserved to survive for so long. And yet, I equally can't get on board with those who get hugely worked up if a story or the characters don't represent exactly their own political beliefs, something becoming much more of a phenomenon these days, I fear. Although it could be just that I'm getting old, which is something I maintain I have every right to be angry about. I have to admit that I have been guilty of much of this kind of anger. I remember when the writer Gareth Roberts wrote a piece in a Doctor Who magazine special about the Dominators, in which he used the story's anti-pacifist message to bash liberals like me. I was appalled. 
It made me hate the Dominators even more, and I was affronted that such a piece of writing should be in a magazine that I bought. These days, thank goodness, I am more interested, actually, in the holes and hypocrisies of my own politics. I'm aware that liberalism contains many compromises and even contradictions. I occasionally get troubled by my own double standards, and it interests me when people write about those or do jokes at their expense. Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, writers of The Dominators, were as entitled to put their views about the peace movement through the lens of Doctor Who as writer Malcolm Hulk was to put his much more left-wing ideology into his scripts. And Gareth Roberts can be as delighted with Hazeman and Lincoln's reading of what Who can say as I can be with Hulk's. You can't only laud a storytelling methodology when it chimes with your own views and call for it to be outlawed when it doesn't. And if you don't have a sense of humour about your own shortcomings, if you're not prepared to countenance the idea that you might be wrong, then be careful, because you might one day work out when you've righteously stormed through life not being able to laugh at yourself and convinced that your way is the only way, that that's what the Daleks do. That, to quote Mitchell and Webb, we might be the baddies. That kind of, and it is, I'm afraid, intolerance can lead, in another time and another place, to burning books or training schoolchildren to shoot people in the back of the head. Now, I may be overreacting and be wrong on that, but of course, guess what? That's okay too. Let me be wrong. People are allowed to be wrong, because if that becomes a crime, well, we'll all be for the high jump. But we like to get cross with the shortcomings of others, because it makes us feel more secure about ourselves. And I think, deep down, we're all battling with insecurities. Even those people you think have a brilliant life and nothing to worry about. Power, status, money, they don't seem to help. Just look at Putin and his big table. But I think we run the risk of courting our fury with the show so much that we can go to great lengths to demonstrate just how politically dubious bits of the programme we don't like are, even if it means having to dig deep and willfully misunderstand scenes or lines or subtext in order to facilitate that cathartic outburst of crossness that we enjoy so much. Some people, yes, they like being cross, and so they kind of like it when Doctor Who makes them cross. Cross is happy for angry people. Now, as I say, I'm pointing the finger at the mirror here. I've been one of the cross ones. I spent years being angry with Doctor Who, worried that the present show wasn't good enough and so it would be cancelled, worried that my friends wouldn't like the programme, worried about how I could be friends with people who got the show so wrong and mocked it, and if they really were friends after all, worried that my family would mock my beloved show and so belittle me. See, it's insecurity. Scanning my comfort blanket for holes. So I was hypersensitive to any criticism of Doctor Who, especially ill-founded criticism, and that would boil over into red-faced anger with alarming speed. Fortunately, I am now older, and if not wiser, perhaps just a little bit slower, and more content not to worry about what other people think, and certainly not to fret about the past which is immutable, and the future which hasn't happened yet. All that time travelling can make you worry about the two time periods that you can't actually do anything about, which leads you to ignoring or overlooking or not appreciating 
the only one you can affect, the one that is right in front of you, the present. I mean, I say that. I say that logically and objectively, and I can see it. But it's not so easy in the moment when you see someone on some TV show say, oh, the sets wobbled in Doctor Who, didn't they? And you want to correct them and point out that the sets didn't wobble any more or less than in any other TV programme made at the time. And why the hell are these people allowed on these TV programmes to talk about TV when clearly they actually know nothing about the history of TV at all? And of course, I can joke about Doctor Who's shortcomings and so can my Doctor Who fan friends because we do it affectionately and we know what we're talking about. And that's context, in it. Do as I say, not as I do. I can tell my son he's a little sod, but if you do it, you're being rude about my child. Anyway, the past. Oh, I hated Peter Davison when he became Doctor Who. It's that flexible format, isn't it? That's what's great about Doctor Who. Hang on, what's happening? You're flexing the format? Stop it! That's awful! Make it how it used to be! It's a show about regeneration, but boy do I hate change. Tom Baker had been the Doctor all my living memory so you'd have thought I'd have been excited about a new Doctor. Well, I was. But when he started doing and saying things differently from how the Doctor did and said them, I was appalled. Can you imagine the internet reaction to the end of the five Doctors today? I'm definitely not the man I was, thank goodness, says the fifth Doctor. Hartnell threw to Baker, hashtag not his Doctors. I was appalled. How dare he be insulting the giants of the past in that way? irrespective of the fact that it's a light-hearted piece of self-deprecation, a joke. There'd have been threads about the arrogance of the actor, the character or the writer on, on Galaxy Forum or Andrew Gums Net or whatever, had the BBC had the temerity to broadcast that line at the height of internet discourse. And I'd have probably been one of the most furious posters, offloading my dislike of Davison and probably unconsciously pouring out all of my other insecurities on the page disguised as impassioned discourse about the programme I loved. Uh, for the record, Davison is now one of my favourite Doctors and I think he was excellent casting and a superb Doctor. But these qualities were obscured by the red mist when I was battling childhood and other animals. And you know what? I still never missed an episode and I spent every waking moment digesting the last one or anticipating the next one or doing both at the same time. But sometimes it felt like I was just hanging on in there with a partner long after we'd fallen out of love and were just together out of habit waiting for one or the other of us to die. And oh goodness, have I ever hated anything as much as the Happiness Patrol when that came out. Pink Tardis, Obvious Artifice, Sweetie monster, oh, I was furious. What would my school chums make of this? In fact, a mate the next day said they turned over at the end and caught the cliffhanger and his dad had gone on about how terrible it was. Oh no, even people's dads hated Doctor Who these days. Yet, when my own son, as a teeny, wanted to watch an old Who, the Happiness Patrol was the one we probably watched the most. Short episode count, lots of colour, easy to follow. Never mind the subtext. The angry heart of the story beats powerfully and rewards a viewer looking for metaphor and for originality. Yeah, it's got a ridiculous go-kart that's slower than an elephant and a sloth reenacting an episode of Moonbase 3, and if taken at face value, its grotesqueness shouts light ent rather than proper sci-fi. But you watch it for what it wants to be, or what you want it to be, if you decide that Doctor Who is a programme you like in all of its forms.
and it's great. Perhaps upon broadcast, I was at exactly the wrong age to enjoy it. I was self-conscious about my clothes, my skin, my hair, my interpersonal skills. I was 14, for goodness sake. So I was bound to be equally embarrassed about people picking over my favourite show. And arguably, when your programme is a bit of a national joke, it was a bold move to do that story, and perhaps a mistaken one. But as an historical document, it's fascinating, fun, and definitely worthy of study and reappraisal. But then, so is the Battle of Hastings, an occasion it was probably also pretty shitty to live through. But don't get me wrong, for all my I love Doctor Who and positive books and podcasts and refusal to slag it off online because, frankly, I don't want to waste my time on social media any more than I already do, certainly not yelling back at someone called Yartek96754 who's called me a twat for hating the cliffhanger to episode one of Remembrance of the Daleks. Hate is a strong word, but the amount of times the Dalek says exterminate rather than just, you know, exterminating renders the novelty of the stair climbing redundant, and I don't care how many online best cliffhanger polls it prospers in. If the internet has taught us anything, it's that democracy is overrated. The emergence of the internet, by the way, coincided with the Doctor Who TV movie, and I remember nipping into libraries to see if I could get any info or spoilers, though that word had yet to be coined. Anything to feed my appetite for Doctor Who. I basically used looking for Doctor Who-y things as practice for discovering how this brave new world of social interaction actually worked. When I eventually discovered forums, though, I realised that far from being a nirvana of like-minded people wallowing in shared joy, it contained things to make me furious. Things that knocked into a hat shortcomings like the Merka or that crap guard in the Time Warrior. Now, of course, we shouldn't be so naive as to think that everything is the internet's fault. It's always been there, this stuff. I remember when I first espied a copy of Doctor Who Bulletin, or DWB, on the shelves of the Place Comic Shop in Wolverhampton. I'd occasionally make a pilgrimage when my friend had work in that city. I overheard some older fans, cool people who had moustaches and everything, being quite funny, in a dry, brummy way, about the shortcomings of various stories I'd only ever dreamed of seeing. Wow! Imagine being so mature you could slag off the old shows that weren't the gunfighters, which I knew, despite never having seen it, was the only bad pre-1976 Doctor Who story, although Invasion of the Dinosaurs and the Space Pirates weren't quite as good as everything else, which was, of course, all wonderful. But these guys, confidently calling the series stars by their Christian names and laughing about a set, well, they must be amazing. Like Paul of Tarsus, on my pilgrimage to the black country, a blinding light suddenly opened my eyes to the joy of worshipping at the altar of lofty disdain for the thing I loved. But not only that, this shop had something that helped to articulate my feelings about modern who. Why wasn't it quite the same as the programme of my fevered imaginings? Why did it seem somehow less exciting now than it must have been then? It was a programme with convincing 20-foot-tall T-Rexes in Doctor Who and the Silurians, which I'd never seen, with fast-moving and exciting space operas like Frontier in Space, which I'd never seen, 
or the black and white stories, which were all, well, apart from the gunfighters, of course, absolutely faultless, even though I'd never seen them, except the Crotons and the opening caveman story, which were, of course, both a bit disappointing and not as good as the stories I wish they had repeated, which, of course, would have been brilliant. But yeah, why wasn't Doctor Who as good as it used to be? It may be a shock to modern fans, but when I was a youngster, we looked back at the past with a certain reverence. There was a blind adherence to anything that had been marvellous enough to have been made or shown before I was born. It was, by definition, a classic. It was an exercise in Rose Tintery as wrong-headed as looking back at one's own prehistory as somewhere inhabited only by racist idiots who need to be scolded. The truth, as ever, is somewhere in between. But who needs perspective? I didn't. I was so angry. I knew that modern Doctor Who was somehow lacking in what it gave me in my fevered imaginings, fertilised by glorious photographs in magazines and the cinematic scope of the Target novels. I could see those old stories so in my mind that they were unbeatable. No set was pokey, no location erected in a studio, no character woodenly performed. The Doctor Who I was seeing on my telly, though, didn't seem quite to have the vast alien hordes invading Earth and getting blown up by soldiers that I wanted. It didn't have gleaming military or space bases with tough characters getting picked off by amazing monsters. Why was this? And there, on the shelves of the place in Wolverhampton, Damascus on a high street, was the answer. DWB. A magazine so furious it could have been played by Prentice Hancock. And this magazine had the answer, the perfect explanation for everything that was wrong with Doctor Who. The producer. I'd started reading the credits, so I knew his name, and it was a name that made you stop and consider it, a curious bastardization of the normal name layout, and, as we have since discovered, probably deliberately orchestrated to make you stop and squint and look again, so that you didn't forget it. Why isn't it just Jonathan Turner? Well, it isn't. It's John Nathan Turner, JNT, who, as the magazine I was staring at, blared with righteous indignation, must go now. Well, now here was something to do with my hours in between episodes. There's nothing like bristling with a sense of injustice to help to pass the time. Things stop being a matter of taste when there's a principle at stake. No one is going to admire you if you don't like the taste of cheese. However, if you don't like cheese because its production is cruel and morally unacceptable, then you have justice on your side. Anger is a dubious emotion, but moral effrontery is righteous. And so I very much joined the ranks of the JNT Must Go Brigade. I mean, only in my own head. I didn't have any like-minded friends I could converse with. At first, I only eavesdropped on the amusing moustache men. For me, the past was great, the future imperiled, and the present unsatisfactory. And I could see it now. Everything that was wrong with Doctor Who was the fault of the producer. And so I revelled in being furious. But it helped too. If people slagged off Doctor Who, I could kind of deflect it and blame the real reason they didn't like it. Though, actually, I still resented people who slagged it off because they were wrong and Doctor Who was brilliant. It just wasn't as brilliant as it could be. In fact, my anger was of a different tenor depending on the company. In Whoville, 
Doctor Who was in a parlour state and needed major surgery. At school, everyone could sod off and they were wrong and idiots for liking the A-Team and Coronation Street and how dare they be rude about the BBC's longest-running programme that makes more money than it costs to make and sells widely abroad, so why don't you shut up? You don't know what you're actually talking about. As I say, I can point out my kids' shortcomings, but you bloody well can't. But anyway, I've mentioned it now, haven't I? Coronation Street, a show very close to my heart for more than one reason and an undoubted success story of British broadcasting, populated by TV icons and made by skilled artisans of the cathode ray. But when Doctor Who was placed opposite it in the 1980s, there wasn't a programme I hated less. Because I had any doubts about its quality? No, I didn't watch it. On principle. Because it represented a threat to what I wanted and liked, and so I needed to hate it, even though it had Marco Polo and Mary Ash in it. I see similar reactions now, in fact. Online, of course. As I've been writing this, I've nipped onto Twitter to see edgelord thespian Lawrence Fox grifting online, and as a result, he's getting all sorts of people mocking him for his ability as a performer and slating the apparent uselessness of his acting career. What a happy coincidence for his critics that this guy, whose opinions they don't like, is also bad at his job. You were just an anonymous support player in Lewis, someone bawled, describing what was, in fact, the second lead in a long-running, highly-viewed TV show. Now look, I'm not a political bedfellow at all of the former Mr Piper, but I don't need to lie about his acting abilities, which are sound, or his career, which by any measurement is a successful one, in order to take on his political points. And I think it would demean me if I did, but the fact is, I don't bother anyway, because it'd be just another actor spouting off about something as if his opinion was somehow more important than anyone else's. And we all know how tedious that can be. In fact, we all know it right now. But that's not the issue at hand anyway. The issue is why our effrontery emerges from such red faces. Now, with Lawrence Fox, it's because it's politics, which, to be fair, is rightly considered more important than, say opinion on popular culture. It's just my opinion, is a common defence from the intellectually feeble. Yes, it is just your opinion. But if it's your opinion that, I don't know, the moon is made of flapjacks, or that black people shouldn't be allowed out during the daytime, then you deserved to be bawled out for having enunciated it. Political and scientific opinions bring with them elements of accuracy and morality, and the shape of the world is dependent on how we mould our political and scientific understanding and landscape. Therefore, the dishonest, the inaccurate or the immoral need to be called to account. I get that. I can see why blood is boiled and why tempers rise. But I'm talking here about the methodology. Saying Lawrence Fox is a bad actor because of his view of, say, Brexit, is in no way an endorsement or defence of one's own view of Brexit. In fact, it seems to me that you can't articulate your own political point of view if someone says, annex Poland, and all you can do is yell back, you would say that, you've got a silly moustache and you're a terrible swimmer, and besides, I've never heard of you. Doing that shows more courage than it does convictions, and that's not a good look. Now, listen. It's easy to take a step back and be loftily disdainful of people's online venting. But, 
and it's important that I keep reminding myself of this, I have to confess my own anger issues. Let's not get into personal psychology in a light-hearted monologue about a programme that occasionally has talking sock puppets and shoulder-padded space dominatrixes in it, but by 48, I've accumulated the same amount of emotional scars as anybody else, and I'm probably not as good as coping with the emotional repercussions of them as some people with better wiring. I try, but I'm not going to opine about other people's shortcomings without admitting to my own. But I'm not applying for the Victim Olympics, nor am I asking you to check if my hun is OK or not. I'm just being truthful, honest, and yes, quiet at the back, as boring as they come. I'd like to blame my teenage fury on boiling emotions and wayward hormones. But what about now? Because I don't think my body is now quite the hazardous conflagration bred on the battleground of teenagery that once it was. And yet, even though I am in almost every respect, a beige man. There's a troubling seam of scarlet bubbling beneath the surface. I remember my older brother coming in just before the start of The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe. I was 37, so hardly a minefield of confused testosterone. I'd committed to watching the programme live on Christmas Day. That's a risk. I've heard tell of annoying uncles drunkenly whirring out the this is rubbish mantra throughout the festive sprinkle of Hoodham and thought, well, I simply wouldn't watch under those circumstances. Nothing sums up more to me what is wrong with modern TV viewers than sitting in a room watching Doctor Who whilst others talk all the way through it, only for them to say at the end, well, I don't understand why they did that. That being something that was perfectly well explained within the story on screen whilst Uncle Gobby was banging on about something else. Ignorance and injustice, as we have established, two intense button pushers. Not only is their criticism incorrect, their very presence in the one room in the house with a telly when they could be literally anywhere else in the world talking about Monster Munch or Brian's wife or Liz Truss or whether Brian's wife looks like Liz Truss eating a packet of Monster Munch is a stark demonstration of the fact that in many ways the modern TV viewer is worse than Hitler. So I was already on edge. And there's nothing worse than being on edge because then you're prone to overreact. When you're on edge, you're preparing to fall off it, aren't you? And fall off it I did when my older brother cheekily entered the room, as I said, just as the latest Doctor Who Christmas special was starting, and said, Anyone want to play Trivial Pursuit? It was a dick move, but my response was so angry, so expletive-filled, it made the colour drain from his cheeks. It wasn't a normal reaction. But all I'd wanted was for him to respect what I wanted for less than an hour in one of many rooms in a house large enough to accommodate a Doctor Who and Trivial Pursuit system of apartheid. But of course, he didn't even want to play Trivial Pursuit. He was being funny. He thought he'd have fun. At Christmas. But when you're around a touchy Doctor Who fan, be careful how you wield your fun. That programme about the amusing eccentric and the talking dog and the enjoyable adventures? It's not bloody fun, mate! And of course, I knew I'd overreacted, and I feel a certain amount of shame about that, even now. I still don't think he should have done it, dick move, as I say, but my response was, I have to admit, abnormal. So fragile are the conditions with which I can enjoy my programme that anything's slightly out of place, and it's ruined. It's like shock-eyes gastric juices being acidized, ruining a lovely feast, 
because Oscar politely asks for the bill to be paid. At least I didn't stab my brother in front of a load of watching children during an early Saturday tea-time slot, I suppose. That would have been unnecessary. And is my brother's defence that it was just a joke justified? Well, that is where it gets really complicated, because as we've seen, jokes can cause a great deal of upset. Good jokes sometimes skirt the line of acceptable taste. Laughter is sometimes a visceral reaction to the shock of hearing something unacceptable. The incongruity of an appalling statement in an apparently silly conversation can provoke guffaws. And it's all about perspective. Well, fun is funny, say stupid people who don't quite realise that different people find different things funny, otherwise we'd all laugh at the same things. But yes, even though I am a working comedian and I hate censorship, there are some jokes I think are less acceptable than others. I hate racist jokes, for example. But hang on, because there are arguments about what constitutes racism and what doesn't. So, OK, we could all agree that racist jokes were bad, but then who draws the boundaries about what counts as racist? In comedy clubs these days, you definitely wouldn't get away with the material people like Bernard Manning were doing 30 years ago. And what he was doing was pretty cut and dried most of the time. He picked on everybody, sure, but he did pick on ethnic minorities. He was, to use the modern parlance, punching down. But with our lack of tolerance for some of that mindless comedic thuggery, have we also fermented a desire to read what a more ambitious comedian or writer says as their actual opinion rather than, say, one that they are satirising. Manning wasn't saying horrible things about Pakistani families to satirise racist beliefs. He was reinforcing them. But in order to satirise such a belief, more modern comedians, it could be argued, have used language or ideas in a contrived way in order to mock outdated racist views. But it could be argued that the satire defence has been used as a flimsy excuse for material that's actually just as prejudiced as anything Manning was doing, but uttered by somebody who went to university. And actually, there is a school of thought that as Manning was just joking, nothing he said should have been taken seriously and that he was an equal opportunities offender. Jimmy Carr doesn't seem to be cut from the same cloth as Manning, but I've seen similarly phrased attacks on and defences of him only recently. So it's complicated and it makes people angry. Jokes. Jokes make people angry. So it's no wonder Doctor Who does. Indeed, I saw someone bemoaning on Twitter the fourth Doctor's well, yes, all the rest were foreigners joke in Robot. This, this person seemed to be inferring, was sad because in this old episode the Doctor was being racist like old people were in the olden days. When in fact it's obvious, well to me anyway, that Terence Dix, the writer, is using the Doctor to take the mickey out of the very small-mindedness he, on the surface, was enunciating. That's the joke, as is the Brigadier's credulous reaction. The butt of the joke is not the foreigners, it's anyone that takes the doctor's line on face value and agrees with it. Now look, not liking a joke is one thing, but not realising it is a joke? Well, then you're the one with the problem, I'd say. It's fine if you don't like cauliflower, but if you deny that it's a vegetable, then you need your head examining. And if you denounce it on a public forum and accuse anyone who grows it of being a bigot, 
then you are a monster of your own creation. But hark me, that tweet, whose tone it could be easy for me to misconstrue because it's a tweet, obviously riled me. So, shoehorning it into my tract here in order to cathartically rip it apart with my own logic and point of view is me giving in to my own anger about something I disagreed with and having a go at, or at least about, a stranger in order to prove my point. Which makes me a monster of my own creation. Ah! But in this case, the person is clearly wrong and I am clearly right. But everyone thinks they're right. That's why they get angry when they think things are wrong. Wheel turns. And I know where this anger comes from. A joke about something you hold important stings. In that way, a joke can be a weapon. That's why politicians hate humour and dictatorships ban it. So if someone makes a joke about the thing we love, we can take it very personally. Indeed, when I was covered in psoriasis as a young man, I would often use humour to deflect what I really felt about it. That was okay. It was my flaky skin I was mocking, and being funny stopped me from being angry. Or at least it channeled the anger I felt about the injustice and pain of being riddled with impetigo that made me look like the mutant in Revelation of the Daleks and stung like the revenge of a thousand bees. But when friends misread my cue and joined in and said something offensive or jokey about my blight with matey familiarity. Boy, did I fume. So yeah, jokes are great, except for when they're not. And when they're not depends very much on who you are, where you are, or who you're with. Oh, and let's be fair, this humour vacuum and propensity to be unnecessarily angry isn't confined to Doctor Who fans, of course. I once took my son to a football match because I thought it would be interesting and instructive for the two of us. And indeed it was. It's an exciting game and there's a thrill at being in a stadium full of hyped up people, carried away on a wave of euphoria, excitement, expectation and yes, injustice, oh ref, all experiencing the ebb and flow at the same time, a gestalt emotional roller coaster. But I was transfixed by a guy behind me to the left, who spent the whole evening engaged in some sort of enraged, scarlet-faced monologue of vitriol. The general tenor of his expletive-filled ejaculations was that nothing anyone was doing was good enough, quick enough, slow enough, accurate enough, and that the provenance of the parentage of most of the people on the pitch was, at best, somewhat questionable. His, presumably, heroes, the superstars of his premiership squad, were all talentless and worthy of ire, not to mention the marital status or sexuality of those on the opposing side, which were, as far as I could tell, all of pretty dubious character, as far as this one-man frenzy klaxon was concerned. And I rather suspect that sometime between then and now, this man has keeled over, burst blood vessels all over his body, poisoned by adrenaline that has boiled to the point of toxicity. He was probably cursing at the uselessness of everybody as his body was lowered into the ground, asking the pallbearers for a fight, calling the coffin a bastard and the vicar a useless dog-collared twat. So why was he there, at the football, making his weekly pilgrimage to an Umbro-sponsored mecca to swear at the premiership prophets? Who knows? 
Perhaps he needed that weekly outlet in order to function the rest of the time. Orwell's two-minute hate in the Ministry of Truth transformed into 90 minutes rancour at Etihad Stadium. And maybe this bile directed at the thing we love, maybe it's containable fury, a useful outlet. Those more physically inclined work out their innate aggression on a sports field. Those less capable or willing to work up a sweat in the great outdoors instead expend any pent-up frustration by laying into some aspect of their chosen hobby, the very thing that is supposed to make their world better. I know when I swear at or about Doctor Who that deep down I still love it, so it's the best kind of fury. After all, no one gets hurt if I'm swearing at an idea. And that's the point. A bit of emotional bloodletting is necessary. Better out than in, as my nan used to say, so long as we don't hurt anybody else in the process. Just as it's not okay to trip up a rival runner or kick an opposing defender, venting your ire at, say, the idea that the moon is an egg is very different to tweeting Peter Harness and telling him that he's a bad writer or indeed a scumbag, destroyer of Doctor Who, not a very nice man. There's nothing wrong with thinking Peter Harness is a terrible writer. I mean, he isn't, but some people don't like ice cream, so all opinions are on the table, aren't they? But don't at Peter Harness when you're making that observation. Or even worse, at him downstream of someone else who hasn't atted him making that observation. Yeah, being rude about someone is bad, but including the person someone else is being rude about in a conversation that person would otherwise have been blissfully ignorant of? Well, there's a special place in hell for those salacious crumbs of cyberspace desperate to be involved by Uriah heaping their way into Sneaksville. But most of us think we are nice, don't we? We're only horrible to people we think deserve it, or will be unaffected by what we do or what we say because their life, well, it's a bed of roses. Thinking your enemy is somehow impervious to or deserving of your ire is, of course, what despots do. I'm not nasty, but sometimes I have to do nasty things to people who deserve it. Yeah, all right, you psycho. And yet, I can feel myself getting angry, even typing these words. That's the frustration of cyberspace. Its inherent qualities contain triggers. Someone saying something one disagrees with isn't the problem. It's them getting away with saying it, unchallenged. It's them thinking they were so right that they took the trouble to say it. And the fact that it is written down makes it seem more official, more like a permanent record. So it can't just lie there, uncorrected. What would history have to say about that? It's the absence of decorum. Someone hiding behind a pseudonym, being unkind to someone I like. Even worse, someone not hiding behind a pseudonym, being factually wrong and rude with it. We're genetically programmed to right wrongs especially Doctor Who fans, existing somewhere on the spectrum which makes us angsty if we see DVDs stored in the incorrect order or with imperfectly matching spines, or incensed that someone calls inside the spaceship the edge of destruction, or, for goodness sake, calls the edge of destruction inside the spaceship. I don't like uncertainty or disorder, and it discombobulates me and I process feelings of discombobulation by getting cross. So, if you don't think the moon can be an egg, 
and are struggling with how cross that makes you feel, then it probably seems perfectly reasonable to take that ire out on the bloke who came up with the idea. Especially because, as a TV writer, he probably lives in an ivory tower with all the other people from the media who are also impervious to insults, are 100% secure, have literally no problems and are probably made of money. And that's the thing about anger, of course. It's not reasonable. And if you spend an inordinately long time in your life thinking and doing Doctor Who, is it any wonder it's the thing that becomes the outlet of your fears and woes? I get much more angry with my kids than with other people's kids because, well, the stakes are higher, aren't they? It's not because I hate them. It's because I want them to do well. And if they make mistakes or get things wrong, well, that will impact upon their prospects. And let's face it, I am the only one allowed to be angry with them or to bring up their faults. So I may as well do it well. And also, I'm probably slightly responsible for any of their shortcomings too. So any anger is actually a mixture of worry and personal responsibility and inadequacy and fear. And I have so much invested in Doctor Who that those things apply there too. If Doctor Who turns out now to have been terrible all along then what the hell have I been doing with my life? When Doctor Who became a bit of a national joke in the 90s, I was probably as angry as I've ever been. It wasn't just Doctor Who. I had young kids, I was in the grip of psoriasis, and yes, I was a heavy drinker. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which the moon definitely isn't, by the way. An egg which, when you cracked it open, revealed an irritating social commentator talking head wanging on about your favourite programme being rubbish. I still have a lot of work to do. My psoriasis has abated thanks to a mixture of medication and psychological help. I don't drink anymore. Time helps too. I don't know if it brings wisdom so much as weariness. The kiss in the TV movie that infuriated me as a concept. The DNA rewriting of the Doctor's half-human ancestry. Well, the former was fairly innocuous and the latter was a piece of rubbish I happily just now choose to ignore. But the main breakthrough I've made, my epiphany, as a result of getting used to seeing practically every opinion enunciated about everything on the internet, has been to realise that I am perfectly free to not give a flying monkeys about what anyone else thinks about Doctor Who. Not that my opinion is any better than anybody else's, or that I am better informed but it is my opinion and it's the only one I can do anything about. Unless I put my mind to going around the world correcting every single misapprehension anybody might have about the show, and that seems to me a rather fruitless and arrogant task to even consider performing. I occasionally get anxious messages from friends and fans saying, have you seen what so-and-so has said about the programme? And I find myself remarkably relaxed about it. So what? If it's someone I respect, I'll enjoy the intellectual exercise of wrangling their opinion and working out why it is so seemingly at odds with mine. And if it's someone I don't respect, then why am I paying it any heed at all? Now, of course, opinions about modern Doctor Who, the latest episodes, are slightly different because they can perhaps shape the public's perception, or even the development of the show itself, so I can understand why tensions run high. There are some corners of the universe that have bred the most terrible tweets. Because, of course, it's not the anger that is the problem, but what you do with it. Anger at injustice can provoke righteous crusades, the changing of laws. 
Anger at the status quo can provoke change. Anger at a misspelled caption on a Blu-ray can provoke the release of a replacement of that particular disc at no additional charge. Robert Holmes wrote some great jokes in The Sunmakers when angry about the taxman. Tom Baker gave one of his best performances in Horror of Fang Rock when he was angry with Paddy Russell and Louise Jameson. The Doctor is our benevolent hero. Never cruel or cowardly, famously. But the Doctor can be compelling when at their angriest. Is there a better Tom Baker scene than his passionate, righteous indignation at the captain's plans to mummify whole worlds in the pirate planet? He even slightly fluffs the word remains, but that only adds to his passionate bluster. Baker, highly lauded for his alien unpredictability and wonderful sense of humour, is also fabulous when enraged. A dramatic Shakespearean actor with depth to mine for rich seams of fury. On a personal level, as someone who enjoys a good rant on stage when doing stand-up comedy, I know that sometimes when I've exhibited what I thought was comic fury, I've assumed an exaggerated annoyance with something trivial because I think it is quite funny, it has often been read the wrong way in real life. People who know me like it. The small band of regular punters to my regular comedy club haunts are in on the joke. But it can wrong foot, upset or even annoy a stranger who just thinks... What's this guy's problem? And anger can be funny, can't it? Seeing Basil Fawlty thwack his car with a branch is one of the great joys of being a human being in the late 20th, early 21st century. The impotence of his act, comically juxtaposed with the level of his frustration, is an hilarious combination. But the joke? The joke is on him. Doctor Who-wise, I sometimes see people getting annoyed with something before it has even happened and without the full facts at their disposal, and think, mate, what are you doing? For example, you will absolutely never have witnessed me yelling down the phone at my friend in fury about what the hell are they thinking casting a pop star in Doctor Who? That's so ridiculous, and before it's even been on, being absolutely certain that anybody in the world would have been better casting than that Billy Piper. Literally 25 seconds into Rose, one part of my brain had decided I'd never thought that ever and that I'd always thought she was a stroke of genius. Yeah, there's probably no more colossal waste of energy than getting infuriated by what-ifs. Which is why there's an old favourite phrase that goes, cheer up, it might never happen. And surely the essence of Doctor Who, for all the righteous indignation the character can display, the essential strength that the Doctor has over the monsters is the way that the character uses humour to battle those who have an absence of it. The Daleks don't have a sense of humour about the absurdities of themselves and those around them. They are furious and they react accordingly if things aren't exactly as they want them to be. And they are never happy and they will always lose. And yes, we react to things. Things make us angry. But in a way, that's us giving power to something, often something that hasn't happened yet or happened ages ago and is impossible to change. It's the emotional equivalent of banging your head against a brick wall when the wall actually has a door in it right next to where you're banging. And I say this as someone who still allows myself to fall foul of the very same fruitless vexations I always have. So if I've made any sense during the preceding broadcast, please let yourself be consoled that I still haven't learned anything from the lesson 
I have just tried to give. But please, don't point it out to me, especially not online or in print, because that, that'd really piss me off. You have been listening to Indefinable Magic. Tonight's episode, You've Maddened It, was written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson, and the music was specially composed for this podcast by Dominic Glynn. tell you what doesn't make me angry it's the fact that there are patrons who make these podcasts possible and they include Stephen Moffat not that one Ruben Herfindahl Peter Burns Peter Harness yeah that one Ronald Hayden Rob Leonard Christopher Meredith Richard Straw Nick Tedston Two Davids don't have your surnames Davids Jenny at Blue Box 99 Paul Caddington Paul Cook Richard Chalk, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Paul Dunn, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Ian K. McLachlan, Nathan Martin, Adam Parker, Barry Platt, Risto Matti Sarillo, and David Trainier. Now listen, if you too would like to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. The lowest tier is £3 per month, and for that you get most of the things that are available, including bonus releases, exclusive content, and uh, and some, you know, bit, bit of extra sort of contact. Um, and there are also other goodies as you ascend up the tiers, but most things are available at that lowest tier, because I don't like holding anything back so there's plenty there and uh, the advanced releases are well in advance the uh, happy times and places podcast is six months ahead currently and also these uh, indefinable magics and the too much information podcasts you're, you're usually a couple of releases ahead of the great unwashed sorry great unwashed uh, so that's three pounds a month and you can even get 10 percent off that if you sign up for a year in one go you get 10 percent off any tier by signing up for a year in one go but look a monthly commitment i know is tricky but there is a ko-fi page ko-fi.com forward slash toby where you can send a one-off payment if you're feeling flush or if i sound particularly tired hungry or needy um but look i know that money is tight and money is about to get a lot tighter so look i hope you listen to these and enjoy them and uh, they they take your mind off some of the terrible things that are happening in the world that i've just reminded you of sorry but if they do if they brighten your day in any way what costs you nothing is to go to itunes or to podbean or wherever and to give these five stars that five star rating really does help and perhaps write a couple of lines of review to give passing trade an idea of what it is they're missing if you could do that i'd be really really very grateful but i'm mostly grateful to you for listening i'm glad that uh, of all the stuff out there you've decided for this uh, arrow assault on your ears uh, it's uh, 
you know, keeps me off the streets. But I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, I'm sincerely grateful that there are people out there who want to listen to my ramblings. So thank you for being among them. And I genuinely mean that. I'm a stand-up comic too. I do Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester every Tuesday night at 8pm. That has its own Twitter feed, at Excess Malarkey. I have a Twitter feed too, at Toby Haydoke. These podcasts have a Twitter feed, at Haydoke Podcasts. And Excess Malarkey also has a Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey, where there's a live show on the first Sunday of every month, which is me with a load of comedians from all around the world doing sort of comedy into our laptops. There's also an archive up there all the time of the shows we did during the lockdown pandemic when we brought comedy to the world uh, once a week and kept comedians in gainful employment. And we had some fantastic people on from Mark Watson to James Acaster via Eddie Pepitone and Robin Ince. I'll tell you what, this one's been a nightmare to record. The sun has come out and so... People have been opening the back door. There's been bird song. There's suddenly been loads of... I thought I'd done some decent sort of sound boothery, but there's been some very noisy motorbikes that seem to be making themselves known. Next door's banging away on the piano again. Uh, the, the the other half's going up and down on the lift. We have a lift in the, in the house, which uh, I can't quite uh, soundproof wholly against. So... Um, so this has been a long time in the making, this one. It's enough to make you really angry. 